0: Okay, good afternoon everyone. Welcome. We have a very special Shir before the Umtif of Purim. <clears throat> I want to share with you information today, which to me is the most compelling information that we have regarding the Umtif of Purim, possibly regarding anything in the entire Tyra. In a way, somebody once told me when they heard this, they feel this is the clearest. Reflection and Manifestation of Hashem's Hand and Divine Guiding Light in the Torah. And uh, you'll be the judge yourself, you'll be the arbiter, but it's certainly very compelling information and it's the first time I'm sharing this in the aftermath of an experience that I had this past Sunday. I went to a particular location that I'm going to tell you about just to be able to enhance uh, this presentation And uh, with that, let us begin with the question that we're all familiar with. And I preface that um, what I'm going to tell you this afternoon, I believe part of it you may have heard before. But when you hear it in the context that we're going to present it, it takes on a completely different light. Let's begin with one of the most well-known questions on the Megillah. Namely, we know that there is one name and one word which is conspicuously absent in the Megillah. And that is the name of Akadesh Baruch Hu. Um, before I begin, I want to thank uh, Mrs. Goldman and Rachel's place for inviting me uh, again to share with you the Torah. We know the Yoban name does not appear in the Megillah. There must be a reason. God is uh, certainly the uh, divine guiding light of all of the Kisve Akoidesh. Why would Hashem's name not appear in the Megillah? Hashem's name appears throughout Tanakh and Megillah Sester, so, which is so clearly the hand of Hashem, why is Hashem, Hashem's name does not appear. The Gemara in the beginning of Masech the Megillah discusses the following issue. We know that there are five possible dates upon which we can read the Megillah Sester. We can read the Megillah on uh, beginning today. Yud Aleph, Yud Gimel, Tesvav. The first mission on Masech the Megillah. Megillah Nikreis, B'Yod Aleph, Gimel, Tesvav. And the Gemara says, where do we learn this from? Says the Gemara, we learn it out from Sukkim. We have a Drashos that teach me that you don't just, yud and Tesvav are not the only days that you could read the Megillah. You could also read the Megillah on yud Aleph and yud Beis. Says the Gemara, how do I know we could read the Megillah on the 13th day of Adar? The 15th it says in the Megillah. The 14th it says in the Megillah. The 11th and the 12th we learn out from Sukkim. But how do you know you could read the Megillah on the 13th day of Adar. And the Gemara uses the following expression. The 13th day of Adar, Yud Gimel, Zaman le- kihila The 13th day of Adar is a time of gathering for everyone. The Rishonim write, what does the Gemara mean? The 13th of Adar is a time of gathering for everyone. The 13th of Adar is what is called Tainas Esther. And because everyone's gathering in tefillah, it is obvious that you should be able to read the Megillah if need be. So we have this great day of Tainus Esther, and there is a certain concept, which may or may not be erroneous, that Tainus Esther is the most lenient of all the fast days, but today we're going to get a different perspective. Why is there a national fast day on Tainus Esther? Why do we fast on the 13th day of of Adar. So, if you st- stand on a street corner and you stop 99 out of 100 people, uh, you stop 100 people, 99 out of 100 are going to say, Oh, we fast uh, Tinus Esther to commemorate the fast of Esther in the Purim story. And that is absolutely incorrect. Tinus Esther has nothing to do with the fast, with the fact that Esther fasted in the Purim story. We do not fast on the thirteenth day of Adar because Esther fasted in the in the perm story. So why do we fast on the thirteenth of Adar? The Rush writes and he quotes Ravinu Tam that there is a Jewish tradition and a long-standing Jewish practice that whenever we go to war, we do the most counterintuitive thing. Everybody knows a soldier in battle needs fuel, needs to eat, he needs calories. Jewish custom is before we go to war, we fast. Because we understand, loy bechayel, veloy bechayach, kyim beruchi, amarashem that the Ribbon Hashem is needed by us in our war. The Ribbon Hashem is the Ishmael Chama, and therefore Jewish custom was to fast before we went to war. When Moshe Chur and Aaron fought against Amalek, we have a tradition, they fasted. So says the Rush, quoting Rabbi Notam, in the times of Purim, Ahasuerus gave license to Esther and Mordechai to go defeat Amalek, so he went to war against Amalek. Now, even though we have no record of this, and there's, this is not documented, and it doesn't say anywhere, that when we fought Amalek, we fasted, since Jewish tradition is that we fast before we go to war, we have the right to presume that the Jewish people fasted, before they bo- they dis- destroyed Amalek, and therefore to commemorate the presumptive fast that we have no record of, we also fast on Tainus Esther. But, uh, honestly, that is not fully satisfying. Is that it? Is that all? Is that the only reason we fast on Tainus Esther? To uh, somehow commemorate a fast that we have no record of, and we just uh, assume that the Jewish people fasted Perhaps there's something more to Tanya Esther than meets the eye. Now the Gemara tells us Megillas Esther, Baruch Hakodesh Nemra. The book of Esther was written with the divine spirit, which means Mordechai and Esther did not sit day one, uh, sit down one day in uh, Starbucks and uh, sip a cup of coffee and decide to record the story. This is a divinely inspired document. Every word was written Baruch Hakodesh. That means we are authorized to ask ourselves about every statement and every phrase and every detail of the Megillah. Why is this included? Why is this recorded? That's uh, what it means, that it's part of the Kisvei HaKodesh. Esther Beruach HaKodesh Nemra. And there are a number of very interesting anomalies in the Megillah. And let us begin with the big letters, and then toward the end of the uh, share we'll, sp- we'll speak about the small letters. So I'm a Balkoire and I can't help myself. Whenever I come to the Psukkah Megillah Sester, I, I, uh, I have to lane them. So I'll try to restrain myself. But, uh, I, sometimes I can't help it. But the first big letter we have in the Megillah is we have a big ches. In the beginning of the Megillah, parak al-pasuk vav, chor karpahas It's talking about the tapestries that Ahasuerus used in his party. Chor karpas uschehles. And there we have a big ches. Okay, now in the end of the uh, Megillah, Parak Tes, Pasuk Choftes, we have another big letter, we have a big tuf. We have a big tuf. So there's a big Ches in the beginning of the story, and we have a big tuf at the end of the story. What is the meaning, what is the significance of these anomalies, of these big letters? So this a very strange Medrash. The Medrish comments in the Alco Chimani in Tehil and Parkhoves. Amarvihuda Ba Rabbi Any house that has snakes in it. Okay, I'm gonna take a poll now. What do we have? We have like sixty five people. I'm gonna take a poll. How many people here on this shear have snakes in their house? So yeah, everybody apparently I see uh, unanimously everybody at the shear has snakes in the house. So it's a good thing you came today because I'm going to save you $85 on the exterminator. The Medrash says, how do you get rid of snakes in the house? By the way, you should know, most people would not have expected that um, people in Flatbush have snakes in their house and I always suspected it to be true and, and today's case in point. So you want to get rid of your snakes. The Al-Qut says, you take the horn of an ayol, the horn, horn of a ram, you blow smoke into it and all the snakes run away. Like when Esther came, Haman ran away. So the Benesh Chai, Chacham Yosef Chayim, he says, what is this medrash teaching me? The medrash is giving me uh, exterminating tips, how do you get rid of snakes by blowing smoke through the horn of a ram. Says the Benesh Chai in amazing revelation. The Benesh Chai says, this medrash is not telling you how to exterminate snakes. The Medrash is teaching us that Purim is not a one-time occurrence, but every single year on Purim. When we read Megillahs Esther, the Gemara compares Esther to a ayal, to a ram. That's the twenty-second parak of Tehillim. And by the way, we have a Masorah that this is a parak we say on Tehillim. We uh, we say it on Purim. Parak Chav Beis. We say it on Tainus Esther, it is a tefillah, it is a chapter of Tehillim that is extremely powerful and effective on this time of the year. Esther is compared to a ram. Why? Says the Gemara, she's compared to Ayeles Hashachar, the morning star. Just like Esther, says the Gemara, just like, excuse me, the morning star is the end of the night. When the morning star rises, that means the night is coming to an end. So to Esther is the end of all the miracles. So the Beneshchai asks, What do you mean Esther is the end of all the miracles? There are many, many miracles that happened after the Purim story. Chanukah happened after the Purim story. In what way is Purim considered the final miracle? And the Beneshchai explains, very importantly, that... The last Golos that we're in is Golos Edoim, which is the Golos of Amalek. And every year we need to chip away, we need to chisel away, we need to overcome this final Golos, which is Golos Edoim. How do we overcome Golos Edoim? How do we get out of the current Golos that we're in? It says the Benesh every year we read the Megillah, and we fulfill the various mitzvahs of Purim, Mishlech Natanas Lev Sudas Purim, Every year we chisel away on that snake, against the Nachash, against the Amalek. Every year on Purim we have another salvation. We have a little bit more of a Yeshua. We're able to overcome the remnant of whatever Golos Edom still remains in the final days before the coming of the Mashiach. Says the Benesh Chai, what this Medrash is saying is that Purim accomplishes salvation for the Jewish people a little more every single year. But now comes the main principle of today's share. And that is, not only is every year on Purim, the Yibbam Sham saves us more from Golos Edom, from Amalek, from Haman, but there is a antecedent, there's something that takes place before Purim every year. And that is, there is a very frightening concept. In a way, Purim is the scariest day of the year. Why is that? So many years ago, I came across a tshuva, a responsa, Shas Tshuvas Shevet HaKahasi, of Rabshamai Kahas Gros. And he brings that the Mequobalim teach us that the story of Purim and the decree of Haman was never abolished. Because if Haman was able to decree and issue a against klal Yisrael, lahashmid l'aray guli abed, and that threat is recorded in the Megillah, and it's so to speak canonized in the Tanakh, and the Rav gave his stamp of approval, then that decree was never abolished. Instead, it looms over the heads of klal Yisrael, chas v'shalem, loyalenu. For eternity until the great day of the coming of Mashiach. Once the Almighty endorsed, ratified Haman's Gezeira, it was never rescinded from heaven. Every single year there looms over the heads of the Jewish people the threat, the Gezeira of Haman. And sometimes that gezerah actually comes to fruition. For example, the mekubalim write in the year Ches Tuf, and that's why there's a big Ches in the Megillah, and that's why there's a big Tuf in the Megillah. The year Tuf Ches is the year four hundred and eight. Now, what year is the year four hundred and eight? So I'm going to tell you a little historical fact that if you ever wanted to to uh, translate a a Jewish date into a secular date, you just add the year 1240. That's a little formula. It's uh, worthwhile to be aware of. The year Tavches is the year Tach Vatat 408, which is 1648-1649. Years of great tragedy for the Jewish people where tens of thousands of Jews were massacred. Why did it happen? What caused it? What brought it about? Say the Mikubalim, it was the Gezerah of Haman. That in the times of Purim, we didn't abolish it. We didn't annul it. We deferred it. We deferred it. But it's recorded in the Megillah. And it's something that loomed over our head for centuries. And it came out in the guise of Tach V'tat. And I heard this idea, and I read this idea many years ago. And I never wanted to speak about it. Because I didn't feel like there was enough... uh evidence, and this was documented sufficiently for me to speak about it publicly. And a couple years ago, I was researching it uh, further, and then one day I came across so many authentic ancient sources to this idea that literally the threat of Haman is responsible for all national disasters that occur to the Jewish people. We deferred it through our tefillah in the times of Purim, but it is something we have to deal with annually. In fact, in the Kubalim rite, that's the reason for Tinas Esther. The actual secret of Tainus Esther. It's not just to commemorate the fast that the Jewish people fasted before they destroyed Amalek, but every year as Purim approaches. Not only do we relive the salvation, we also have to deal with Haman's looming threat of lahashmid laregli abed, and how exactly do we overcome it? How do we abolish it? How do we abolish the threat of tufshin aleph? That's why, even though we fasted in tavshin Pe, we fast yet again in tavshin Pe aleph, because ki kassav asher nitchtof b'shem hamelech ein lahashiv. This is not something that could easily be retracted. In fact, the Yismach Moshe, in his commentary to Megillah Sester, Yismach Moshe is the, uh, so to speak, progenitor of Satmar, but he he lived in the times of the uh, Chassam Soifer. And he interprets P'sukim in the Megillah to allude to this idea that the thread of Purim was never removed. So what does Esther do to defer it? She writes it in the Megillah, but she writes it with a big tuff, pushing it off to the year 1648-1649. And the advantage of that says, the Yismach Moshe is that in 1648-1649, there were many more Jews around in the world. And the amount of Jews who were going to be annihilated by Haman, in Persia, if it would have happened then, that would have been the end of Klal Yisrael. So Hashem Berachamov deferred it to a time in history where the same number of Jews would not have meant the end of our people. That is recorded in the Megillah. And then I found this idea in the writings of Reb Shamshen who, by the way, was massacred in 1648-1649. And a friend of mine showed me that this was already published by Rav Yaakov Chagiz, before 1648-1649. And he records that the reason why God's name is not in the Megillah is because God said if my name would be in the Megillah and I would sign my name on this document, it would be a disaster for the Jewish people. Because this is a document that not only records salvation, but it endorses to some extent the decree, the disastrous decree of Haman. And not only is it recorded, says God, if my name would be on it, it would like it would be as if I signed away on this decree. I can't put my name on it. Says the Bal is This is the reason why when Esther asked the Chachamim, Kisvuni Vuni canonize me, put my book in the Tanakh, the Chachamim said, Are you kidding, Esther? We can't put this book in the Tanakh. We can't give it any more credibility or credence or importance than it already has. The more credence it has, the more dangerous it is for the Jewish people. So friends, there's this idea that the threat of Haman was never abolished, it was never rescinded, it was never annulled. It's something we have to deal with on an annual basis. That is the reason for Tinas Esther. So even though on a halachic level, yes, Tainas Esther is more lenient than the other fast days. But on a metaphysical level, on a kabbalistic level, Tainas Esther in a way is the most important of all the fast days. And now with this introduction, with your permission, I would like to share with you a segment that I'm sure you've all heard before. But I highly doubt you ever heard this in the following context. And in preparation of presenting this to you, I travel two hours on Sunday to a very special location. If we turn to the end of the Megillah, we will notice, until now, we've discussed the small letters of, uh, excuse me, the large letters of the Megillah. But if we go to the end of the Megillah, we encounter an amazing phenomenon. And if you have a Megillah Esther in front of you, or you have a Chumash in front of you, please take a look in Parak Tes, Psukim through Yud, we encounter the ten sons of Haman. And lo and behold, you will notice, that in the words of the ten sons of Haman, we have three small letters. The tuff of Parshandasa is written small. The Shin of Parmashta is written small. The Zion of Aizasa is written small. And yes, we also have a big letter. We have the big Vav. And I tell you, for 2,000 years, no one had any idea what these anomalies were all about. But let me share with you two very important questions. Haman takes the misstep with Esther. Achishersh walks into the palace. He says, "Hagam Are you crazy? You're fooling around in the palace while I'm there? And Ahasuerus doesn't know what to do with Haman, and this karvoina guy says, Agam, he ne And Ahasuerus says, okay, telu alav. And Haman's dead. Just like that. Yeshua's Hashem and it's unbelievable. It's The Jewish people were about to be annihilated, and Haman takes a misstep, and like that, he's a dead man. It doesn't take much for the B'Rom Shalom to turn the tables very quickly. And then Ahasuerus turns to Esther, and he says, dear, Not like before, where I said, Ad chatzi hamalchos Not like before, where I said, I'm only going to give you up to half of what you ask for. Now, ask for your heart's desire. So you would think uh, Esther could have said, uh, let us return to Jerusalem, um, build a big yeshiva for us. Esther makes the most bizarre possible request. Esther said, you know, yesterday... In Shushan, the Jews killed 500 men. And we killed the 10 sons of Haman. So, what I would like to do, Ahasuerus, you see those 10 carcasses over there? They're being consumed by ravens and rats. We want to hang the dead guys. First of all, Esther, excuse me, this is the best thing you could come up with. The king of the world is saying, ask your heart's request. And this is what you come up with? You want to hang ten dead guys? And why would she want to hang ten dead guys? So what I'm about to share with you was the discovery of one of the all-time great ga'onim. And I tell you, I've said this over before. Perhaps you haven't even heard me say this before. I decided this year I'm going to find this Sadiq's kever, and visit his grave before I present his discovery. So, on Sunday, I went with my friend, Rav Nassim Wilder, we went to Woodbridge Memorial Gardens. We went to the kever of one of the all-time great minds, and the Jewish people, Rev Michal Ber Weissmandel. By the way, I, uh, I, just got, I just landed, I spoke in Boca last night. Last night, after 12 a.m., I got a phone call, Somebody saw the clip. You could go on tour anytime. Watch the clip at the kever of Remichal Ber Weismandel. Somebody called me that he heard from a friend of Remichal Ber Weismandel. I wasn't there. He was a great scientist. That he was visited by Albert Einstein and they conducted experiments together. I received this call last night after 12 o'clock. I was given contact information of who to contact to verify the story. Okay. If you want to verify it, I'll give you the numbers. But Michal Berweismandel, he uh, put in so Herculean effort to save Slovakian uh, Jewry. And he was successful in halting the deportation of Slovakian Jewry for about two years. And But it ultimately fell on deaf ears. Roosevelt wasn't interested. Churchill wasn't interested. There's a book published by Artscroll many years ago called The Unheeded Cry, and uh, ultimately, Ramichal Ber and his whole family were on a cattle car headed to Auschwitz. Rav Michal took a knife that he stashed away in a chala, He pulled out the knife. He chiseled away a hole in the car of the train. He jumped the train. He walked back to Slovakia. Eventually, he saved his life. His whole family perished. He lived a very sad life. Yeah, he survived. He, he was the son-in-law of love. the night Shorov, He built the Nitro Yeshiva Mount Kisko, but he, he was so broken and depressed his whole life. He died very young. He died in his 50s. And he had a, this very interesting idea. When he built his Yeshiva, his idea was to create a farming agricultural, agricultural society where the Bachrim would work the farms during the day and they would learn at night. Now, uh, needless to say, that idea has not yet caught on in Flatbush and Borough Park. Most Bachram today are not farmers, I repeat. Um, uh, most Bachram today are not farmers. But at the, at the time, he was hoping this would catch on. And uh, he suffered from uh, heart disease and he, he passed away very broken and, uh, and quite young. However, Reb Michal Ber had an amazing specialty. And his specialty was, he, without the use of a computer, knew exactly how many letters there were in every part of the Torah, and he could calculate in his mind what is called diluge skippings of letters. So for instance, he came up with the following. Rav Michal Ber came up, that how many letters are in Megalos Esther? I believe 12,196. So if you go to the first Aleph in the Torah, of Bereshis, and you count 12,196 letters, you get Samach. And from there, if you count 12,196 letters, you get Tuf. And from there, if you count 12,196 letters, you get raish. Esther. Esther is alluded to by using a system of the number of letters in Michal Sester, using that space system and applying it to the Chumash. So someone said, Reh Michal where's Mordechai? He said, I don't know right now. Come back next year. So the guy came back the following year. He said, I found Mordechai. You go to where Mordechai is alluded to in the Torah. The Gemara says, Mordechai minatari nine, Where's Mordechai alluded to in the Torah? Mem, a Darar, One of the ingredients in Pasha's Kisisa of the Shem and Hamishcha. Mem, Darar. From there, if you skip 12,196 letters, you get a resh. another 12,196, you get a dalid, and so on, you get Mordechai. He did this without a computer. He said that when he would read the Sefer Torah, the letters would literally dance off the page, and he just... He saw documents the way a computer could read a document. It's There are no words to describe it. He was, so to speak, uh, he had a supernatural mind. And this discovery... I remember uh, I was a Rav in Queens for about six years. I once said this over to an audience. Somebody came over to me, then in his mind, this is the clearest demonstration of God's guiding hand in uh, the world and in history that he ever came across. This is the discovery of Rehobar Weissmandl. Friends, we know we have a tradition. The tradition is that the nation of Germany, the country of Germany, is Amalek. This is a tradition we have from Rabbi Shua Leib Diskin, who says that he has this tradition from the Vilna The Vigra himself, in his commentary to Mesechta Yuma, writes that whenever the Gemara talks about Germania, it should be amended to spell Germania, referring to Germany. The Gemara in Mesechta Megillah tells us, Two things about Germany. The Gemara says, Yitzhak Avinu turns to God. And he says, God Almighty, my kid Esav, he has the capacity to destroy the world. Muzzle him. Stop him. Don't let him be unleashed. Because he has a component to him called Germamia, Germany. That if Germamia would ever be unleashed, they would go out and destroy the world. So Esav excuse me, Yitzchak prays to God, God, do not allow Esav to have molek to, have, to, to be, unleash Germamia. Germamia is the capacity to destroy the world. And then the Gemara reveals very mysterious information. The Gemara says that in Germamia of Edom there are 300 crowned princes And there are 365 chieftains in Rome. And every day the 300 chieftains of Germany fight against the 365 officers of Rome. So what exactly is this Gemara telling us that Germany has 300 chieftains and every day they fight against Rome? The Gemara is revealing to us prophetic information that what holds keeps Germany in check what ensures that Germany does not go out and destroy the world are two things. Number one, they're disjointed. They're ununified. There are 300 states. And number two, they can't get along with Italy. They can't get along with Rome. But if Germany would ever unite, if Germany would ever make an alliance with Italy, they would go out and destroy the world. 1871... Bismarck, their Germanic republics. You could read William Schreier. He writes that in eighteen seventy one Germany was a patchwork of three hundred states. Exactly what the Gemara says. And in World War One, Germany attempts world conquest. Where is Italy in the war? Italy originally didn't join World War War. In the end, they fought Germany. By the end of the war, Germany is defeated and Germany is unsuccessful in uniting and in conquesting more land, conquering more land. But then Hitler rises to power and these were the two focuses of Hitler the first thing he did is he said, let us unite all the Germanic republics. And his officers and his advisors said, how can we do that? We've been disjointed for centuries. Hitler says, no, one Germany. And the other thing Hitler did, against the advice of all of his advisors, is he made an alliance with Italy. It was the one treaty that Hitler never broke. And everybody knows that maybe Italians know how to make pizza, but they can't fight to save their lives. What does Hitler need Italy for? It is as if his guardian angel recognizes that which the Gemara teaches us, that if Germany would ever unite, if Germany would ever make an alliance with Italy, they would go out and destroy the world. Friends, it is unfortunate that Hitler understood what a Jew is, more than we understand, what a Jew is. Hitler wrote that the Jew seeks to inflict on the world two imperfections: the physical imperfection, the bris milah. And by the way, when I read that, that Hitler believed that the mila was a mum. Now we understand what Chazal say about Amalek. Amalek took the mila and threw it heavenward. That's exactly the position of Hitler: that the that the mila is a mum. And secondly, Hitler wrote, the Jews inflicted the world with the imperfection of discipline, conscience. And Hitler attempted to free the world from the shackles of the Mila, the shackles of discipline, the shackles of the conscience. And the Gezerah of Haman, which was deferred and delayed to 1648, 1649 now comes out in full fury in 1939. This is not a new decree. This is not a new Gezera. This is the Gezera of Haman lahashmid Laroy Guli Abed. And Hitler makes sure to stay united and Hitler makes sure to keep an alliance with Italy. Somehow the war comes to an end. In 1946, 11 Nazis were captured, and they were tried in Nuremberg. Why Nuremberg? Because that was the seat of the Nazi propaganda machine, and there was a world uh, war tribunal, and these 11 Nazis were convicted of war crimes. So you'll say, what does this have to do with the Purim story? Well, we go to the hanging of the ten sons of Haman. They're dead already. They were killed. Why is Esther hanging to, to hang? Why is Esther praying? Why is Esther asking to hang ten dead guys? And the answer is the word "machar" sometimes means tomorrow, but sometimes "machar" means in the future. Esther <speaking in Hebrew> el Esther says to the king, <speaking in Hebrew> if I could find favor in your eyes. Tomorrow, tomorrow, please, king, tomorrow we want to hang the ten sons of Haman. Esther was not referring to the ten sons of Haman. She was referring to these ten Nazi criminals who in the aftermath of the Holocaust it brought some degree of consolation. Some feeling of justice came down to this world. Sanity was restored when people saw these 10 Nazis hanging. But I thought 11 of them were captured. Yeah, but Goring committed suicide. So you say, well, then, uh, then this is not comparable. Well, what do you mean? Let's read the Megillah. Haman had an 11th son. Well, actually, he had an eleventh child, a daughter, who, when she saw who she thought was Mordechai, leading who she thought was Haman through the streets, she drops the chamber pot down on the head of who she thought was Mordechai, and just then Haman looks up, and she looks down, and she realized what a what a disaster this was about to be, and she jumps off the roof, and she commits suicide. Goring corresponds to the daughter of Haman, but you'll say Goring was a man, and she was a lady... Let's just say that if you know a little history, Goring was quite a deviant and we'll leave it at that. And if you want more information, do your own research. But they were quite similar. Put it that way. So you have the 10 Nazi criminals who were tried in 1946, which by the year, by the way, was the year Tavshin Vav. So you say, yeah, you got the wrong date. They were going to be tried. By the way, there was a big debate. How are we going to kill these 10 Nazi crimin- criminals? And most of the judges wanted them to be h- hanged, except for the French ju- judge said we should shoot them. It's not bakovedic to kill uh, generals by, by hanging them. We should shoot them. And ultimately the decision was that they were going to be hanged. Now, what's amazing was when these Nazis found out that they were going to be killed, they uh, they took it, they accepted it with equanimity. But when they found out that they were going to be hanged, they chapted sitter. They said, "Hanged? We're not, we're not lowly criminals. We're anoshim and We don't deserve to be hanged." They didn't want to be hanged, and they were going to be hanged in the year Tafshin Vav. But the church pleaded for amnesty. And their sentence was delayed to Hishanah Rabbah, Toth Shin Zion. So Esther asks the king, because we have a tradition that whenever it says king in the Megillah, it refers not to Ahasuerus, it refers to God Almighty. Esther turns to the king. She says, God Almighty, in 2,000 years, the Jewish people are going to be distraught, despondent, broken. Questions. Restore some sanity to the world, God. Show them your justice. In the future, God. Please allow us to hang those 10 Nazi criminals. And Esther says, just so that everybody recognizes that this is your hand, God. 2,000 years earlier, I'm going to include in the Megillah the exact date of the hanging of these 10 Nazi criminals. T- criminal Tafshin Zion. So you say, come on, if you know anything about the Jewish calendar, the year Tafshin Zion occurred six times in our history. T- Tafshin Zion is the year 707. So it occurred 707, 1707, 2707, 3707, 4707. So Esther said, God Almighty, please allow me to put in a big vav so that everybody recognizes that this is going to be the sixth time Tav Shin Zion occurs in the Jewish calendar. So you'll say, Gladstein, I heard this a million times. You never heard this before. Because now we're understanding that the book of Esther is not just a regular document of prophecy. It literally contains every threat of annihilation that ever occurred to the Jewish people, including the dates, starting from 1648, 1649, where you have the big letters, and the Revan Shum illuminated my eyes. V'ashem That when it comes to 1648, 1649, that, I believe, is when the decree of Haman came out into the world. That's why the letters and the dates are written in big letters. That's when Haman's decree came out to fruition. But I believe that in the year 1947, when those ten Nazis were hanged, that was, to a large degree, the diminution of Amalek in the world. That is almost the full destruction of Amalek. That is why those letters were small, indicating that now Haman and Amalek was so to speak, Uh, trivialized, neutralized. Their kayach has been made katan. Those letters are katan to indicate the diminution of Amalek in the world. So we have Tavshin, we have Tavches, that's when the decree of Haman came out to fruition. We have Tavshin Zion, that is when Amalek was finally squelched. And all we need to do, friends, is just knock them off. Whatever little remnant still remains from Amalek in this world. And as I'm sure you know, as reported by Newsday in the year 1947, it speaks about how these Nazi criminals wanted to die with dignity. Only Julius Streicher went without dignity. He went to the gallows, wild-eyed, screaming, Hail Hitler! And his final words were, Purimfest. 1946. It was Hashanah Rabbah, many months from Purim. But somehow, if they didn't know, Maz Le'chosei, their angel, understood that this was the second Purim for the Jewish people. Megillas Esther is a very unusual document. You know, somebody commented to me that in his eyes, Where do we have a clearer demonstration of the Almighty in the whole Torah? Where God records a future date? How could we have anything more parallel to the hanging of the ten sons of Haman and the ten Nazis with the date, the exact date and century? I mean, you can't make this up. You don't have anything comparable to this in the Chumash, in any of the Svarim of the Nevi'im. So I want to share with you one final idea. By the way, in the, the students of the Arizal write that one of the Kabbalistic secrets of drinking on Purim to the extent where a person is completely out of sorts and they're lying on the ground almost dead is because since there is a looming threat over our heads annually, we so to speak, we drink till we drop and at least let the decree be fulfilled in this fashion to save our lives. That's what the students of the Rizal right. I want to share with you one final thought to think about. The Gemara tells us there are things in this world that are a shemitz a me'ain, a semblance of the real thing. The Gemara says a dream is a semblance of prophecy. Shabbos is a semblance of the world to come. Honey is a, sembl- a semblance of the man. The Medrash has one more example. The Medrash says, The Torah is a me'en, is a semblance of Chachmahol, God's divine wisdom. Which is a startling teaching. I thought the Torah is God's divine wisdom. So clearly, the Torah is only the diffused version of God's wisdom as it is manifest to us, but there is this body of wisdom called Chachma Ho'Elyonah in its raw sense is infinitely greater than our appreciation of the Torah. In other words, what honey is to the man, what Shabbos is to the world to come, what sleep is to death, that is what the Torah is to the raw wisdom of God. So I ask you, do we have any information, any document that is straight, a piece, a segment, a piece of the Chochmah Al Yoina, and the students of the Arizal agree, um, reveal that in fact Megillas Esther is not Torah. It's beyond Torah. It comes from the Chochmah Al Yoina itself. It is literally a piece of the raw, undiffused wisdom of God. In other words, if you want to get a little bit of a taste of the power, of the magnitude, of the sheer revelation and manifestation of the Riban in this world, the document that contains the wisdom of God in its unadulterated, so to speak, its rawest form is Megillas Esther, which is why Chazal say even if someone is in the middle of learning Torah, they stop learning to hear the Megillah because the Megillah is even on a higher level than the Torah itself. As the Chassam Soifer writes, the light and illumination of Megillah Esther is greater than the light of the Torah itself. So we are about to approach the day that the Arizal says is the brightest, most illuminative day of the entire year. We hope and we pray that this great light brings all of us and brings all of Klal Yisrael. Yeshuais, Nachamais, R'Avraham Shem should bring Rafua to all those who need it. R'Avraham Shem should bring us all the ultimate salvation that we're hoping for—the rebuilding of the Beis Hamikdash, the Geulah Shlema, Sheyavai Vi V'Amenu. Amen. Thank you very much for listening. If anybody would like to read this Shir in Lashon Hakodesh, it's available. In uh, our humble safer. It's called Magadarakiah. You could get it on our website. It's called rabbidg.com. It's available with free shipping. Thank you, Mrs. Goldman, for the opportunity. Brachavat Slacha and Afrayach Kaltav.